very excited about what I want to share this morning. I, I want to do like a part two. A few weeks ago, we did a, the last time I was here, I spoke on spiritual circumcision is the removal of the flesh, the body of flesh from the inner man. That's what spiritual circumcision is. This is going to be a part two of that because there's so much more that can be said to clarify some things. Spiritual circumcision, spiritual circumcision is the removal of the body of flesh from the inner man. It's the real circumcision, the real, of which the Abrahamic circumcision was but a picture. And that's what you and I have now in Christ. Everybody sitting in this room, if you're in Christ and Christ is in you as a believer, you are sitting here as a circumcised person, a spiritually circumcised person. And you're inner man has been cut away from the body of the flesh by the hand of God, Colossians says. And that's why your union, my union with Christ is possible. That's why you and I are righteous 24-7, seven days a week. That's why you're holy now and forever. You can go from uncircumcision to circumcision but God made it such you cannot go from, from circumcision to uncircumcision. You can't go backwards. So once you believe and enter into this covenant with God, you have entered through the door of no return. You are scarred forever, spiritually circumcised by the hand of God in union with him. He has shut the door on the ark and sealed it. You couldn't get out of that ark if you wanted to. You can go from uncircumcision to circumcision, but you cannot go from circumcision to uncircumcision. Awesome. It's awesome. And this is what's so awesome about this. And men have not seen the reality of the new creation and this spiritual circumcision and they haven't, they've grappled with this issue of sin and sin in the believer's life because we still sin as believers from time to time. We all stumble in many ways, James says. And so in order to, to answer and explain the sin problem with the, in the believer's life, this whole thing has gotten so muddled that we have missed the awesome glory of what God did in this new creation. And I'll tell you this, saints. This is what Paul saw that triggered his understanding of how to live in the power of God. Romans 7 says, Paul struggled with this thing. He was a believer. He loved God. He hated sin. This is all Romans 7. He hated sin. He willed to do God's will. He wanted to do God's will. He wanted to be a good Christian. And yet he found the revelation came to him of a different law or principle or truth that was working in his members. This, the revelation of the power of sin in your physical body is what is rarely, if ever, taught in the body of Christ for fear of Gnosticism. For a fear that this is weird. It is not weird. It is not Gnosticism. It is the apostolic teaching that the power of sin has now been quarantined in your members. You, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is alive because of righteousness. The outer man is decaying year by year, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. 
This truth, saints, this truth of the power of sin being quarantined into your body is what triggered Paul's understanding of the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus and caused him to move in a path where his mind was no longer set on the flesh, which is death, but the mind was set on the spirit, which is life and peace. It's all about the unseen. I mean, Paul said, Paul, now remember this, saints, Paul was commissioned by Jesus himself to explain his gospel. So forever remove this nonsense out of your thinking if it's there that Jesus taught one gospel and Paul taught another gospel. There is, there is that nonsense that's out there that, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm with Jesus. I'm going to go with what Jesus is teaching. I don't, go, I don't know about Paul. No, that's ridiculous. Jesus appeared to Paul and commissioned him to go forth and explain his gospel. He actually appeared to him several times in this mission, in his journey, on the ship, in different places. He appeared physically to him and encouraging him to go to this city and that city. I have many people in this city, Paul. Don't be afraid. He commissioned Paul to explain his gospel. When you read Paul, you're reading the words of Jesus himself. And when Paul thought maybe this was not Jesus, he would say so. In the letter to the Corinthians, he'd say, you know, this is probably me. This is not the Lord. This is not the Lord, but I've learned through wisdom. This is probably the best thing to do in, you know, some certain situation. But when he doesn't say, this is me, and this is not the Lord, it's the Lord. It's the Lord speaking through Paul. So that's ridiculous to say that Paul's teaching something different than, than uh, what Jesus taught. Okay. This thing, well, let's pray. <laughs> Lord, thank you so much. This is so awesome. You said we shall know the truth and the truth would make us free. Lord, you said in the latter days that all would understand the mysteries of Christ. You said in the latter days that there would be, many would be given insight to lead others to the revelation of the gift of righteousness. You said in the last days that all the spirit of God would be poured out as if in a latter rain. And all revelation would come forth and the mystery of God would be finished. All these things are upon us now. Now. Oh God, help us to have eyes that see and ears that hear. For many kings and many prophets desired to see and hear these things and they did not. But blessed are your eyes, blessed are your ears who hear and see these things. For they belong to you and to your children, and to your children's children, as many as the Lord God shall call. For these are ours, these are our gifts from the Holy Spirit. For he who spared not his only son, will he not with us, with him, give us freely all these things? He who spared not his only son, will he not with him, freely, Give us all these things. Thank you, Father, for opening the eyes of our heart. As Paul prayed for the church, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be open, that you might see, the eyes of your new heart might be open to see what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us and in us according to the power that he was exhibited when he raised Christ from the dead and set him on his own right hand above all principalities and powers. What a work. What an awesome work. 
Help us to grasp it, Lord. Help us to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. These things, saints, we, keep in mind, saints, these things we can, we can understand and we can articulate to a point. We can understand these things and we can articulate them to a point. But we can't go sometimes past that point because we're not supposed to. We're not supposed to know how all this works necessarily. There is enough revelation in the scripture that helps us see what to believe. That's the key. It's not something that you understand all the intricacies of it. The scripture says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, that the things that are revealed to us belong to us and to our children. The things that are not revealed to us belong to the Lord. He reveals only what we need to know in order to believe and to have some logical understanding because it is a higher logic. It is a higher wisdom. It is not of the wisdom of this world, Paul says, but the wisdom of the spirit. But it does make sense in a spiritual way. And it, it's beautiful. It's genius. It's genius when you see it, when it unfolds before us. But just keep in mind, you don't have to explain every little thing to every critic. We, we can articulate to a point these mysteries, but that's why they're called mysteries. And when you lose the mystery of God, then you might as well be God. The scripture says we will not know all things as we are known until we leave this body. So and now in this body, we see in part, we prophesy in part, because it is impossible for us in this state, in this body, to grasp the awesomeness of this work. In fact, Paul had to be taken out of his body to, show, for, to be shown these things, which is why that's recorded for us. Paul says, I knew a man 14 years ago. He's talking about himself, but he's humble. He don't want to make brag about his spiritual experiences. So he said, I knew a man 14 years ago. I don't know if he was in the body or out of the body. It was an experience, an out-of-body experience. Paul is describing where he said, I was taken up to the third heaven. I was taken up to that other dimension. Paradise, another word for it he used. I was taken beyond. The third heaven just means you've got the first heaven, which is the atmosphere around the earth. Second heaven are the stars. Third heaven is the other dimension. Beyond the stars. It's not stars. It's not, it's not light years away. Heaven is not light years away. It's not distance. It is a dimension through a door. Space folds and you step over and you're there, even though you're sitting here. Which is why you're up there while you're sitting here. <laughs> Seated with him. It's awesome. Okay, so Paul says, Paul says, I don't know if I was in the body or out of the body, but I saw it. God gave Paul this the understanding of this new creation, how holy and perfect he really was. But he couldn't see fully until he got out of this brain. So God, in a supernatural way, took him out of the body so he could see it. Some translations say, and I saw things that are not lawful to be uttered. That's not what the scriptures, that's not what the Greek says. The Greek says, I saw things that I can't articulate. It's too, it's better it's better, Paul says, it's better than I could even imagine. I cannot articulate. I cannot overstate, Paul says, I cannot overstate. I cannot overstate this unsearchable riches, he says. 
He says, who has, who has seen this? Who has known the, this unsearchable riches? Don't you see what he's done? That's what Paul's saying. He goes, I cannot, I cannot say it loud enough how you have been made one with the creator. Bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. This mystery is great. But as he is, so are you in the earth. He did it. I can't even say it loud enough, Paul says. That's what he's saying. He goes, I saw things I cannot even articulate. But God did that to confirm all these things the Spirit had been showing Paul and just put a cherry on top of it and said, sealed it and said, oh my God. Ruin for life. Ruin for life. Okay, let's move quick. So, first let me say this. When we talked in part one about this, the power of sin in the body. And again, we're talking about this whole concept of spiritual circumcision. The true circumcision, whereby the body is cut away from the inner man. The verses in Colossians, where, it's Paul, where uh, Paul says that the hand of God actually cut away the body of the flesh. In a circular, it's, it's, circumcision is circular. Because it's a circular incision, circumcision. It's a circular incision, cutting away the flesh. And so what Paul did was he cut away, Paul says, God cut away the body of the flesh. Now notice where God cuts. God is cutting for a purpose. He's cutting for a purpose. He's cutting to separate two things. He's cutting to separate you from your sin, from my sin, okay? Now, if it's true what we've been taught in many circles, that the spirit is saved, the spirit is holy, but the soul is not yet holy. The soul is becoming saved or being saved or becoming holy, more holy every day. And the body will be redeemed and will be made immortal. If that's true, God would have cut between the spirit and the soul. He did not. If If that teaching is right, God cut at the wrong place and left sin in your soul. But what if God did not cut in the wrong place? Hmm, Imagine that, like Barbara says. What if God knows what he is doing? What if he cut the body of the flesh away so that he could raise us from the dead for we were in our flesh dead in trespasses and sins what if he cut away the body of the flesh leaving the power of sin in our our members in our mortal body and created a new person from within by an act of creation soul and spirit we sing he saved my soul well did he or will he he did It's not that he will one day save your soul. He did save your soul. Scripture says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me and you shall find rest for your souls. James says, when when the flesh is aroused, it wars against the soul. It's outside the soul. Warring against the soul. See? So the new creation, the new person, the inner man is a new soul and a new spirit. Do you realize this? Your soul cannot sin. 
Your soul, your real new man cannot sin. First John says, for the seed of God abides within this new creation and he cannot sin. See, this is the stuff that drives theologians crazy, but it is the revelation of this awesome work that lets you and I see, wow, I really am in union with him. Okay, all right, this is so cool. All right, let's look at this. Why, do, why are people afraid to talk about the power of sin in the body, in the members of our body? Why do people say that's, that sounds, that sounds kind of Gnostic to me? That sounds kind of Gnostic. When they say that, what they're saying is that there was a doctrine or a false teaching in the early church from Gnosticism. Gnostic spelled G-N-O-S-T-I-C, Gnostic and the word Gnostic comes from the word knowledge or gnosis and the knowledge. And their teaching was something like this. There's, there's like this secret knowledge. And if you knew this secret knowledge and, this, and you go through these different steps, of, you know, through angels and so forth, you can find this nirvana or oneness with God or so forth. Well, part of their teaching was this, that, that the body itself was evil. The body itself was evil. In fact, all matter was evil. And their teaching, anything visible, anything you see, including the body, was evil. And so that's why John says, and they, that's why they taught that Jesus really didn't come in the flesh because that would really mess up their doctrine. I mean, because if he came in the body, if he came in a body, then the, you know, the son of God cannot, become, cannot come into earth and something evil. So they taught that it was like a phantom appearance. It wasn't really a, a, a body. It wasn't really a man. He just came as the appearance of a man. And so John, that's why John says, if any man says that Jesus did not come in the flesh, he's antichrist. That's why he said that. Because the Gnostics taught that the body was evil and therefore Jesus couldn't come in a body. So we have to change that up and change that doctrine. And John attacked that and said, no, if you don't believe that Jesus actually came in the flesh as a man, then you are speaking in the spirit of Antichrist. Okay. Now, this is so cool. You know why we don't have, you know, have you ever heard preachers talk about, you know, or concerned about the heresy of Gnosticism in the church today? You ever hear much about it? You don't hear anything about it. I mean, you never hear anything about it. So is this like an old heresy that just kind of faded away? You know why you don't hear much about it? Because we're not preaching the truth. If you preach the truth of how the power of sin is in your body, Gnosticism is right around the corner. But if you're not preaching the truth that the power of sin is in your body, Gnosticism never, is, never occurs to anybody. You're just wrapped, you're wrapped up in legalism and a fleshly effort to become more holy and the whole concept of your, the power of sin being in your members and your physical body, which would give rise to the era of Gnosticism, never comes up, never comes up. You can trace the truth of the church from the early heresies. You can take the early heresies and trace what the church was teaching by what they had to deal with in terms of heresies. We don't deal with the same heresies because we're not preaching the same gospel. Do you see that? So when you start preaching what the apostles preached about how the power of sin is in your body, that's why we get the word flesh. Walk not in the flesh, but in the spirit. That's what that means. Because the apostles understood that in the body, there's the power of sin that is resident in the body. That does not mean the body is evil. We do not believe, and the scripture does not teach, and Jesus did not teach, and Paul did not teach, that the body was evil. The body has become the temple of the Holy Spirit. The body is the something that God prepared for his own son. This day, thou hast prepared a body for me. 
that I might be manifested on the earth and walk on the earth and offer this body as a sacrifice. So this is not saying that the body is evil, but the power of sin within the body. Think of it as a germ, a virus, so to speak. There's something in the body that works against the new man. Now, Jesus did not have this germ. He did not have the power of sin in his body because he had no earthly father. The power of iniquity goes through the sperm, through the seed of a man. That's why he had to be born of a father, not of this earth. He could not have an earthly father for the power of sin came through the sperm to the child. That's why Mary needed, needed redemption. She too had sin in her. Mary, she was not sinless as commonly taught in some churches in Roman Catholicism. No, only the Lord himself, had a, his father himself gave birth to him. And Mary was in the womb of Mary so that his blood would be pure without the power or mystery of iniquity working within him at all. Tempted just like the first Adam who was pure yet without sin. Tempted just like the first Adam yet without sin. So here's the whole picture of this this awesome work of God. And he says here, let's see, we were talking about, oh yeah, the the Gnosticism. So, So you say, well, what... What? So the body's not evil. That's right. The body's not evil. The body's good. The body's awesome. God made the body to reflect his glory. Christ himself took on a body. But the power of sin is in the body for the believer. And that power of sin has been relegated to the physical body so that your new man, that's why absent from the body is to be present with the Lord immediately. Because you are totally without sin, totally holy, totally righteous, as if Jesus himself was walking around in your body. It's awesome. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, in these weak earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power is clearly seen to be of God, not of ourselves. The scripture says it's the spirit of life that puts to death the deeds of the body. That That implies the deeds of the old man who is dead and not dying also. The old man was crucified once. When does the old man die? He died when Jesus died. When Jesus died, we were crucified with Christ. When you believe on Jesus in time and space, that which has already been, that which is, becomes real in you. Because you receive the Spirit of God comes in and cuts away your body and then raises you from the dead. For God raises us from the dead and calls into being that which did not exist before, a new person. Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. He said, listen to this, Nicodemus. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. It's a whole new person. You once were from below, you're now from above. You once were of Adam, you're now of Christ. You once were of the first Adam, you're now from the last Adam, the Lord from heaven. You once came from the Adam, from the dust of a living, a living soul. You're now from the Lord from heaven, the quickening spirit, the one who makes alive life itself, life itself. That's who you are. Sons of God, what is the essence of the power of sin that works within us? What is it really doing? I'll tell you what it's doing. It's affecting your mind. That's why the power of change or transformation, really. We say change, but it's really, when we say change or transformation, that's change or transformation that is seen outwardly by men. The change, the transformation has already taken place within. 
But the transformation before men is something that is gradual. Men see fruit coming forth and more fruit. It's an outward manifestation of what is already within. Jesus said, let your light shine. Let your light so shine that men may see your good works and glorify your father. You're already a son. That's why he said your father. You already have light. That's why he says, let it shine. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So inside of us, we are glowing, glowing, awesome light. We saw a glimpse of this at Pentecost when the fire came upon their heads briefly and then went inside them, disappeared inside them. The very presence of God that's happened every time you believe. God joins himself to us, cuts away the body, the flesh, and raises us from the dead, a new creation, a son and daughter of God, an heir of God, a holy nation, a royal priesthood instantly holy and sanctified once you were not now you are justified and now you are sanctified paul says not going to be sanctified or sanctified okay so this is so that's to make to be clear that's what i mean by the this whole thing of the power of sin so what's the essence of this power of sin how does it work on the mind i tell you how it works sin deceives you the power of sin deceives you what's the deception the deception is found in the garden of eden from the very beginning this deception from that from the enemy himself from his own self-deception and that he said, I will be like the most high. I will be, I will take over. I will, I will, I will. Five I wills, Satan says, I will, before he was cast down. And here he comes to the garden and he basically brings that self-deception into man by saying, you don't need God to be like God. You don't need God to be like God. If you ate this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can be like him. All you need to know is what's right and what's wrong. You can do this. You can pull this off. And he planted a seed of doubt as to God's character and God's love by saying, he doesn't want you to know this because he knows if you do this, you know, you'll be like him. And he wants, he's a big shot. He wants to be in first place all the time. And I don't like him very much. And I want you not to like him too. That's what the enemy is saying. So what is the essence of the power of sin that works in our flesh? Is that you can do it. You can do it. Without God. The root of all sin. You don't need him. The Son of God had this incredible divine nature working in him that says, apart from my papa, I can do nothing. That's what you have now too. You have in you, because you're a member of the body of Christ, and you have been made a partaker of the divine nature, you have at the core of your being this, this shout with joy to your papa. Papa, without you, I can do nothing. And I love to have it that way, papa. You are my strength. You are my glory. You, I come in your name, not in my own name. I don't come in my own name. I come in your name. See? That's what's in you. As a new creation, your joy is to rely on him, to rest in him. But the power of sin in the flesh is always trying to work on you, and you're thinking that you don't need him for this. He doesn't want to be bothered for every little thing in your life. Do something on your own for a change. Come on. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Come on. Be a man. Come on. Why are you so dependent on God? You can do this. Come on. you got a good brain. You're pretty, you're pretty intellectual. You can figure this stuff out. Look at all the talents you have. You can do this. That's the whisperings of the power of sin in the flesh. 
that lead you and try to lead you to do things on your own, to try to make things happen in your own strength, to try to work things out in the flesh, wood, hay, stubble, but not the fruit that comes forth from resting in the omnipotence of God within. Gold and silver and precious jewels, fruit that remains, that no flesh may glory in his presence. It's awesome. And it's a rest. It's a rest. So, and I had a question from the last time someone asked me, he said, okay, I, I love what you're saying, but how did we get separated from our sin if it's still in our body? I mean, that's pretty close. I mean, it's right here in, the, in our members, as Paul says. So how, how does that mean? How, this is how. The scripture says we've been separated from our sin as far as the east is from the west. It's possible because the separation is a separation of dimension. Dimension. That's what it means to be in the flesh or in the spirit. Romans 8 says you are no longer in the flesh, but in the spirit if Christ is within you. Romans 8. God, Paul says we have been translated. We have been moved from the kingdom of this darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son by the gift of the spirit. The spirit is the agent by which we move into another realm. That realm is now within you now. So you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. So you could not touch your sin if you try to. It is truly separated from you as far as the east is from the west. You can never meet, east and west can never meet. The scripture is true. The scripture is true. Do we have to find that verse? That's okay. We were trying to find a verse that, remember what Paul says in one of the Corinthians letters? He says, he says Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Let us, you know, purge out the leaven and, and purge out the leaven in your life and, and, and honor what Christ has done for you are already unleavened. There's a verse in Corinthians, awesome verse. It's, it's Paul's way of saying, put off the deeds of the old man because you are already new. But it's so cool. He says, he says throw out all the unleavened fleshly stuff in your life because you are already unleavened. Awesome. There's this great verse I wanted to read. But this is where people can get confused, though, in this whole thing about, about this, this, um, this incredible my, the mystery of our being moved to another place. See, God took away our sin by taking you away from it. God took, away, took sin away from me by taking me away from it. That's what it means in Romans 7 when he says, I was once married. I was once married. Technically, I was once married really to the flesh. I was married to the flesh. I was in the flesh. I was in the flesh. I was of Adam. So through the body of Christ, Romans 7 says, through the death of Christ who became flesh and blood for my, for my sake, without sin, through the body of Christ, then my body was cut away from me. My body died, so to speak, or my person died in judgment. So that is the circumcision. That's why Colossians calls it the circumcision of Christ. The circumcision of Christ is, a, is another way of saying the cross. The cross is the circumcision of Christ. Not that he needed to be circumcised, but I need to be circumcised. I need to have my body cut away so he who is without sin became sin on my behalf so that I could die through his death. I was crucified with Christ so that he could cut away the body of the flesh. So once I was married to this flesh, I was in the flesh and when I sinned, it was me sinning. But now I'm no longer married to the flesh. 
but now have been joined to another, even the same Christ who is now raised from the dead, Romans 7. So now the new man raised from the dead in this shell, the new man with an old body raised, joined to him that might bear fruit unto God because now that life is now my life in union with him. So I'm married to Christ himself. Now, when I was in the flesh, I was under the law, under the jurisdiction of the law. I was in this realm, the earthly realm. He had to remove me out of this realm for sin to be removed from me. It's the opposite of what religion tries to do. Religion tries to remove sin from you, but keeps you in the same realm, which is impossible to do. God, which only God can do, is to remove you through death from this world. And this is one of the problems we have in religious thinking. They don't know how to handle the unseen reality with what is seen. Paul knew exactly how to teach the unseen reality and encourage people to put off the deeds of the old man without compromising the truth of this reality. So anyway, so I'm, out, I'm no longer under the jurisdiction of the law because I've been, I have died. I have been judged through the cross of Christ. I've been removed from this area. I've been re- removed from the earth. That's why Paul said things like this. Why do you still subject yourself to decrees and rules like touch not this and eat not this as if you're still living here? He said that. As if, as if you're still living in the world. Don't you know? Haven't you understood? For the world was crucified to you and you to the world. You're gone. You're out of here. You're done. You died a long time ago. What are you doing? Don't you know who you are? Don't you know where you are? Isn't that awesome? Now look at this. Because the church, because the religion doesn't see this work of God that we are already sanctified, that we're already holy, we've come up with these explanations for for sin in the believer's life. And one of the, one of the uh, first things you hear a lot about is, uh, well, in the, in the Roman Catholicism, you have, um, in Roman Catholicism, you have, you have uh, faith and grace and works in order to be more holy and to be prepared for heaven. And in, in these works are not just good deeds, but works of the sacraments and prayers and attending mass and hundreds of rules. Hail Marys, our fathers, whatever it takes. You know, all these things to add to faith and grace to be made holy enough to one day be fit for heaven. Okay, the Protestants broke out of a lot of that stuff and rediscovered justification by faith. But as Clark says in his book, they didn't get sanctification right. And the Protestant church in, for instance, in the, among the Protestants, you have like the, uh, say, Reformed Calvinist view. Reformed Calvinists believe that sanctification is a progressive thing, that you're progressively getting more holy and more um, sanctified. It's a progressive thing. Then you have another group, uh, the Wesleyans, the uh, Methodist. The Wesleyans, in dealing with this topic said, no, no, there's a point in time when you're sanctified. It's a moment when you surrender all. It's an experiential thing. It's the old Wesleyans talked about being sanctified and they get to a place where they stop sinning and they, they, they get to a place where they, they, they actually, you know, I've, I've, I've surrendered everything to God. It's, it's a moment of sanctification. And they, and when they sin after they, after this moment, my grandfather was one, I know when they sin after this, they call it making a mistake. (laughs) It's not a sin. 
because that kind of messes up the whole sanctification. But that's so, that's so funny. They, they, they would say, I erred, I erred, or I made a mistake, but they don't call it sin because they, they've been sanctified. Now, why do they do this? They're struggling with the truth in Scripture that you are already sanctified and already holy, but their outward life doesn't manifest that. So they're troubled by that. So, they, so, so it must be a gradual thing. Uh, or it must be one, one moment in time as a mature believer when I surrender all and I get sanctified, maybe that's it. And after that, it's just considered mistakes, not really sin. Or you have this, the other group, the sinless perfection group. They too see the scriptures that talk about we're holy and we, you know, power of God is in us and we, you know, and so they say, well, let's just take it for face value. We can get to a place where we don't sin anymore. And they preach it and they teach it and, and they delude themselves into thinking that they're walking in these bodies without any sin whatsoever and that they're walking perfectly whatsoever because they too do not see the unseen and how that relates to the seen. You see that? So we have all this confusion. Is it gradually, I'm being gradually made more holy or is it a one moment in the future of my, my life as a believer where I surrender all and I'm sanctified or is it a, a life where I can live right now it's just, it's my fault that I'm not doing it because God said I can live sinless and sinless perfection. No, and we're not talking about either one of these three. And sometimes I'm accused of teaching sinless perfection because they're hearing in their ears that I'm without sin. And the truth is, I am. The new man is without sin. If the new man had sin, I would need another redeemer. I'd, I would need Jesus to die again. If I'm not as righteous as God is, then what am I? Now, this is where theologians screw up. They have two things that they talk about called standing and state. Standing and state. Most theologians will say that our standing with God is that we're righteous, holy, blameless. Other words used for this is positional. We're positionally righteous. We're positionally holy. That's our standing. But our state is somewhat very different. This is our day-to-day life on earth. We don't always act righteous and act holy, and therefore our state is not the same as our standing. And so theologians separate these two. Paul does not. The writings of the apostles said your standing and your state are the same. You are just as righteous as Jesus is righteous, not in a judicial way only, not just in a positional way only, not just in a legalistic, fictional way only, but you and I have literally been created new in him by an act of creation. And that's why the body had to be cut away from the new man so that that pure new creation could live in union with Christ within, I in him, he in me, with no taint, no sin. It's the funniest thing in the world how these theologians talk about standing in state and they talk about how, they talk about Jesus is in your, how Jesus is in your heart and in the same breath they'll say, now search your heart if you have any sin. <laughs> okay, so Jesus is, in, let me get this right, Jesus is in my heart. But I still have sin in my heart. It's impossible. As Clark says, he, God does not live in a dirty house. I love that message that Clark gives. God, God does not live in a dirty house. He cleansed this house. He created this house new again. And he joined himself to me. And there's no sin in my heart because I have a new heart. And that is the new covenant teaching that is True. Prophesied in the Old Testament, the day will come when I'll wash you with pure water and I'll put you a new spirit, new heart within you. 
fulfilled now in Christ, a new heart, the true circumcision of the heart, Paul says, a new heart. That other, those other teachings about progressive sanctification or sanctification in a moment like the Westlands or sinless perfection, which is always, which is just the flesh trying to perfect itself. All of those deny, they deny that you have a new heart, which is why they're on that track because they're trying to fix themselves, work on themselves. This is so crucial. The mind has been renewed to the reality of the new creation and God's way of quarantining sin in the body of the flesh and our members so that you can say with Paul, I get it now. After he just said, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Because when I want to do good, I do evil. The very thing I don't want to do, I end up doing. What the heck is going on? What is this that causes me to bend toward evil when I, as a new creation, want to do good? Then you can say, I get it now. It is not I that's doing this sinning, but it is sin in my flesh, Paul says in Romans. It is not the real me. That's why I have desires to do the things of God. It's not me. It's the power of sin working on me in this body to make me make choices and make me think thoughts that are not consistent with who I really am, which is why the power of the renewal of the mind, that's where the battle is, the mind. The mind is being renewed to the heavenly things. So therefore, Paul says, oh my God, so there is therefore no condemnation of those who are in him. Even though I sin, there's no condemnation. I realize, I, oh my God, I see it now. That's not me. That's the sin that he kept in the mortal body, but that's not me and my members. And if I try by willpower and by hatred of sin and just knowledge of right and wrong to pull this off, there's another law working in my members that takes me into captivity every time which is more powerful than my willpower, than my hatred for sin, and even knowledge of right and wrong. And that is the power of sin in these bodies. But there's another power. He says, oh God, I see it now. There's another law, another principle, another truth, another revelation. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Something wonderful has happened to me. Something wonderful has happened to me. Wonderful, wonderful. I've been raised. I've been created new. I have life. I have his life. I, has his, I have his life. And therefore, I will have my mind set not on the things of the flesh. I will not try to figure out all my sins and try to focus on my sins. And that's the very thing a lot of teachers teach is to search yourself for indwelling sin. And they even say, search your heart for indwelling sin so you can repent of that, so you can get more holy. It is a major trap. It is, it's not truth, and it's a major trap. And the enemy is just got them captive until they burn out, until they give it all up and walk away or whatever, and God's still with them, but they're just totally done, see? But when you see that the life of God in us is, is done, you don't go to conferences to get charged up anymore. Jesus said, he who drinks of my water, this water, it will become in him a spring. You walk around with a spring inside of you and with no ending. Jesus said, he who believes on me and really understands what I've done will never thirst again, never hunger again. This thing about pursuing God and the pursuit of God and hungering after God is, is filled with leaven. Fill with a search 
for a God who is within. They need to get the revelation of Jacob, for God is in this place and I knew it not. This is none other than the gate of heaven. This is the house of God. You see? They need to get the revelation of this, un, this incredible work that God has done that they might rest, rest in him and allow the spring to spring up, spring up a well, spring up a well within you. Okay, so... So you see, saints, why standing and state are the same thing. Like Clark says, it's a state of being. You're standing before God and your state, of, state before God is the same thing. Now, the old covenant saints, they did have just standing through faith because the work had not yet been done yet. The old saints were not yet regenerated. They descended upon death to Sheol. But the new creation is a whole new deal. We not only have standing, we have state. We have a new creation that has taken place because of his death and his resurrection. And that is why you can be called the sons and daughters of God. Lord, thank you so much for helping us see these mysteries that are beyond. Oh, gosh, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Lord, thank you for opening our eyes. Who can know the thoughts of God but the Spirit of God? And the Spirit of God is given to us freely that we might know the things that are freely given to us. Lord, thank you so much for opening our eyes. There is a new day dawning in the highlands of the Spirit. There is a new day dawning in the highlands of the Spirit. And blessed are those who have ears to hear. For they shall know his joy and they shall know his peace and they shall know his life. For behold, I come to give you life and life more abundantly. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. I am the Lord and I am your father and I love you with an everlasting love. And with loving kindness, I have drawn you to myself. Amen.